Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Christopher Snowden. He's the head of lifestyle economics at the IEA, the Institute for Economic Affairs in London. His latest book is Killjoys, a critique of paternalism. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Chris. Great to be on the show. What is paternalism, or at least in the in the ways that you describe different types of paternalism in your book, but is it more of a general sense? What is paternalism? It's basically the idea that um, you should take care of people for their own good, uh, particularly using coercion. I mean, there are different forms of paternalism. Uh, people talk about soft paternalism and hard paternalism. Um, I'm more interested in the hard paternalism because I write mainly about what you might call nanny state issues. And that kind of movement towards getting people to eat their greens and not smoke and not drink and so on um, is becoming increasingly coercive. And it is, I think, clearly paternalistic. I discuss in the book some of the non-paternalistic reasons why you might want to try and, um, for example, put a tax on alcohol. There are good economic Pigovian reasons for doing things like that. Um, but the main drive from the public health lobby on these issues is ultimately paternalistic. They just think that people shouldn't be doing these things and they're going to try and stop them. What kind of coercion are we talking about here? Because on the I mean, on the one hand, you can think of coercion as, you know, the direct application of violence. So we're going to, you know, beat you up if you try to smoke those cigarettes. Um, but on the other hand, there's, you know, mandatory menu labeling laws that require the, you know, we're going to put calorie counts and other nutritional information on menus, which doesn't seem to be in quite the same category. So when you talk yeah. about coercive paternalism, like what's the range of coercion we're talking about? I quite like the definition that Thaler and Sunstein use in Nudge. Um, in Nudge, of course, they talk about libertarian paternalism, and they don't consider it to be libertarian paternalism if it changes the costs and benefits. That's their kind of benchmark for this. Um, and so you can do that in various different ways. You can do it most obviously by just changing the price. Um, John Stuart Mill, I think, got it right. 150 years ago when he said that any increase in, in price by you know, putting a syntax on something is a form of uh, coercion. He even uh, compared it to prohibition insofar as if you don't have enough money to buy the product, then you are essentially prohibited from doing it. So that's coercive. You've got things like uh, smoking bans, which I mean, that's fairly uh, nakedly coercive but again it changes the cost and benefits you can still smoke but it's just much less convenient and you've got to be out in the in the wind and rain um there are more subtle things um which on the face of it mainly seem to be coercive towards industry but most of these things tend to have knock-on effects for consumers so um advertising bans licensing restrictions so you can only have so many shops uh, open in a certain area or they can only be open for a very limited amount of time. All these things, again, inconvenience consumers and change the costs and benefits by uh, essentially raising the costs in whatever way. And there are also ways in which the benefits can be reduced. So um, I know at the moment in the States, there are discussions about taking nicotine out of cigarettes or, or reducing nicotine to a very, very low level. Um, in the European Union, we're soon going to be looking at a ban on menthol cigarettes. Uh, and again, these are uh, these are policies aimed at discouraging somebody from doing something by making that product less enjoyable. We're also, incidentally, in the, in the UK, um, currently in the grips of a food reformulation 
scheme, which is kind of quasi-voluntary, but is aimed at essentially making food companies degrade their products and take out the sugar, put it in the artificial sweetness, which for a lot of people represents um, the product being made worse. You mentioned Nudge, which uh, is a pretty famous book, as you said, by Thaler and Sunstein. Uh, and that can be a form of, I guess, soft paternalism. And in, in your book, it, it seems that you it's definitely not the one you have a biggest problem with. But but would you say that you're you're almost in favor of Nudge or it's not something that you really concern yourself with? Or are you concerned that if we create a department of nudging, then the nudgers themselves will try to essentially change our behavior in ways that they view as optimal? Yes, and we do have a behavioral insights team in the UK that kind of do that. But to be fair to them, they stick pretty closely to the um, the guidelines and limits that Thaler and Sunstein set out. I know there are quite a lot of people who have a problem with nudge and they think it's rather sinister and it certainly could be made sinister. But I think if you just read the book and take the book and take the authors at their word, um, I genuinely do think they are much more libertarian than paternalistic. And their whole point is that there are things that can be done in particular with regards to what they call the choice architecture in changing the default for example there's always got to be a default and it's not set by god it's you know set by somebody so the idea that you can avoid manipulation altogether um is wrong um and they just say that there are certain things that can be done which genuinely are in the best interests of the majority of people and for anybody who is not in that majority there should be no cost to you know, opting out. Um, my problem with nudge is not that it's particularly creepy or sinister. It's that actually there aren't that many practical applications for it. I don't think there are some things like, um, you know, putting down the question about whether you want your organs to be used after you die on driving licenses. You know, I don't see how anyone can have any kind of libertarian objections to being asked a question. And a lot of the most useful stuff in Nudge is really just that. It's just reminders, really. A lot of it's just glorified reminders. It uses the kind of techniques that advertisers have been using for a very long time without anybody really complaining about it. Um, but you are right that a lot of people have got Nudge wrong and have taken it too far. And certainly for the public health lobby, which is, as I said before, you know, kind of instinctively coercive. Um, when they got wind of the idea of Nudge, the kind of ideas they were, came up with, they came up with was, well, okay, we're going to uh, basically ban cigarettes, but you will still be able to order them by mail order if you can prove your age and you've signed a, a smoking license and that kind of thing. <laughs> and that clearly breaches what Thaler and Sunstein are saying. That is changing the cost and benefits very significantly. Um, so I don't have a problem with Nudge. I think it's basically pretty benign so long as people stick to the rules in the book. Um, but you often hear people talking about nudges, which are not nudges. And poor old Richard Thaler has had to take to Twitter a number of times over the years to um, ask people not to blame him for the latest idea from Mike Bloomberg or whatever, because um, these policies are not nudges. If if nudges, true nudges, um, as you've articulated them, are okay, and the the goal of you know, helping people be better off by changing the choice architecture is okay. And if some of these things that we're helping people with are like serious issues, um, 
So we're we're helping people, you know, give up smoking, which can have extraordinary costs for them as an individual, and is particularly difficult for many people who are smokers to give up. What's wrong with the shift from soft paternalism, so defined as you know, we're not actually messing with the costs involved, the activity to harder paternalism where we are that you know because on the on the one hand like if if the costs um if you're going to do it without the costs changing then the coercion wouldn't impact you anyway because you're already doing it like if you know so your cigarettes don't cost anything more but I'm going to give them up well then you wouldn't be hit by the coercion because you would have given them up but if the if the cost to the individual of continuing the behavior or the benefits they'd gain from shifting their behavior are sufficiently large Shouldn't we just kind of weigh that against the the coercion, especially if it's you know of a minimal kind, like increasing the cost of a pack of cigarettes by fifty percent? Well, increasing the cost of a pack of cigarettes by fifty percent would be a pretty major imposition, actually, on a, on a lot of people. The, the, all these things are matters of degrees, and the extent to which they bother you in practice will will come down to. Um, you know the, the extent that liberty uh, is infringed and uh, things are made more expensive, um, uh, less convenient. You know, if you take something like seatbelts, I consider myself a fairly libertarian person, but I don't, in practice, have a big problem with the state telling me to put a seatbelt on. I kind of, I find it annoying, kind of in 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 theory and in principle. Um, but you can't deny the fact that it does save a lot of people's lives. And there really isn't much of a cost, as far as I can see, in, in having to put a seatbelt on. Um, so that's a fairly minor imposition. And yeah, in in small doses, any form of tax rise is going to seem a fairly minor imposition. But all these things add up to a pretty big imposition. And now in Britain and large parts of America, Smokers are pretty much treated like second-class citizens, and that's come about over a period of decades of kind of incremental legislation, most of which is too small, you know, taken individually to kick up much of a fuss about. And that's why I think it's important to have some kind of ethical framework in which to think about these things. Otherwise, um, you you get on a slippery slope, and and liberty is sliced up like a piece of salami, and before you know it. Uh, you're living in a very different world to the one in which you started. It it does seem like the the public health world is pretty good at slippery slopes, uh, and I think the UK is maybe a, a little bit, maybe five years ahead of us on some of these things, especially with sugary food and fast food. But at the same time, public health people will say, and and this is related to nudge, but also just the use of behavioral economics. That if you ask people if they want to lose weight, and they say yes, and you ask people if they want to quit smoking, and they say yes, and then they have a moment of weakness of will, possibly due to addiction. So can we really infer from say someone being addicted to cigarettes, or I guess there are people who argue that people are addicted to fast food. Can we really infer that it's a it's a adequate accurate uh, depiction of their preferences as opposed to them saying, I'd like to lose weight and then having a weak, weakness of will later? Well, economists tend not to treat stated preferences very seriously at all if you've got revealed preferences to look at. And saying that you want to lose weight or you want to quit smoking is kind of a meaningless statement um, in which you, you're not having to put any skin in the game. People say a lot of things. People say they'd like to emigrate. People say they'd like to have a different partner or a different job. But most of them wouldn't appreciate it if you you know, put them on a boat and forced them to move to Australia just because they'd said at some point that they'd like to live there. Um, they wouldn't necessarily appreciate it if you, if you forced them out of your, your, their job. 
and they had to go off and find another one, even if ultimately it, it transpired that that was the best decision they ever made. Um, so you can't take people's kind of aspirations, which is what they are seriously, uh, unless you look at what the outcomes need to be. So yes, people, a lot of people want to lose weight, but a lot of people also like eating nice food and they don't particularly like going to the gym or, or doing half marathons. So it's a trade-off like anything else. There's a trade-off there. And if you just ask somebody, would you like to live in a different country? Would you like to have a different job? Would you like to lose weight? Would you like to quit smoking? Would you like to drink fewer sugary drinks or whatever? Um, it, it, it doesn't mean anything because you can, yeah, as an aspiration, I think, I mean, I, I smoked for a very long time. And in principle, I like the idea of not being a smoker. Uh, and a lot of people say, you know, I, yeah, I, I wish I didn't smoke. But what they really mean by that is that they wish they could be as kind of happy as they are, but without having to spend a lot of money on cigarettes. Um, so they can kind of fantasize about still getting as much pleasure as they do as smokers without um, you know, having to make the actual sacrifice of, of not smoking. So I don't think you can treat those kind of statements very seriously at all. And public health people or any other kind of campaigner who treats a an answer to a survey question as if it was the final answer about what those people want to do with their lives, I think uh, are making a quite a self-serving mistake. We talked about mentioned public health people a couple times, and but you have a couple chapters on public health paternalism, and whenever you use the words public health in the book in that context, you put quotes around them. Oh. Um, why? Because I think there's two different types of public health. I think there's a traditional form of public health which is fundamentally defined by its attempts to tackle contagious diseases and the collective action needed to tackle infectious disease is utterly different from the kind of individual action that is needed to tackle people's individual risk factors for various different lifestyle diseases. Um, so when you have um, an outbreak of a virulent contagious disease, uh, if you have uh, something like HIV, if you have Ebola, then there is a need for the government to intervene because unfortunately freedom does sometimes have to be restricted up to and including quarantining people. Um, and the government, when it comes to vaccinations, I think needs to be uh, a part of that and so there are instances i mean the same also applies to air pollution um you know it's a classic uh, it's a classic problem which cannot be solved by the individual alone if you've got a factory pumping out lots of noxious air there is nothing the individual who lives in that city can do to avoid it they have to act co collectively there have have to be collective rules saying you know we allow this you know, this amount of pollution and no more. So there's a fundamental difference between the tr traditional mission of public health, which necessarily required collective action, and the version of public health that has emerged in the last 40 years or so, which isn't actually focused on uh, on contagious diseases very much at all, is focused what, on what they call non-communicable diseases and the lifestyle factors associated with them. And there is no 
reason at all why the uh, why society has to act collectively uh, to combat obesity or smoking um, or drinking. Some of these things, as I uh, alluded to before, do have consequences for other people, but that can be that can be tackled. Uh, in the normal way that economists recommend with these things. But we don't need to have the government deciding what we have for breakfast in an effort to tackle obesity because, um, A, the government's not going to be very effective at doing that, actually. It's it's a very different thing from um, you know putting out vaccines in schools. Uh, and two, there's no moral justification for doing so. These are individual problems that can be dealt with individually, not collective problems that can be dealt with collectively. So when I talk about the uh, public health movement as it currently describes itself and defines itself, I put it in speech marks just to distinguish it from the real public health movement that had real achievements uh, in the 19th and most of the 20th centuries. This distinction that you're making, um, I I can see someone objecting to it on on something like the the following grounds, which is so communicable diseases are diseases that spread throughout a group and infect individuals. And so on the one hand, yes, to, to prevent their spread, collective action is probably needed. But once you have them, it's it's an individual problem. Like me having Ebola is something that I need to be treated for. You don't treat like everyone around me for it. Um, and and so it it ends up looking like just like if I have if I suffer from obesity, I have to be I'm the individual that has to be treated for that. It doesn't look like a public health issue in the way you've described. But but obesity and smoking and drinking and all of these things are at the same time problems of the environment in the sense that smoking used to be much more culturally acceptable than it is now. You could smoke wherever you wanted to. Cigarettes were relatively inexpensive, that you were kind of encouraged to do it because that's what the cool kids did. Um, and and so in order to bring down smoking, which is a, you know, the smoker is suffering from ill health in exactly the same way someone who has a disease is suffering from ill health and we want to stop that, you have to change the environment. And so in this case, you have to make smoking less um, less socially acceptable or less accessible. Just like if there's disease going around, you need to change the environment such that fewer people come down with it. So is there this distinction? I mean, it seems like is it resting just kind of on like public health is about pathogens, even though the the kind of when you abstract away, the effects can look somewhat similar? Not really. It's about um, it's about the individual and their choices. And the public health movement now just defines anything that affects large numbers of people as being a public health issue per se, whereas the whole reason it was a public health issue to tackle something like cholera was because it affected or potentially affected everybody. And there wasn't uh, much that individuals could do to prevent themselves from getting it. Same with, with air pollution. When it comes to obesity, it's everything the individual can do to prevent getting it. And the individual is far more likely to succeed in tackling their obesity than, uh, than the government is going to do it on their behalf. You I mean, you're quite right in that that is how public health people look at it. The way you've described it is exactly how they look at it. They say, well, you know, the, the environment has an influence here. We think advertising has an influence and price has an influence. And of course they do. Um, but that doesn't make it 
a public health issue in the true sense of the word. What it really is is preventive health, I guess. Um, but that doesn't carry quite the same weight when it comes to implying that it it, this, it makes it a matter for the government. And you know the way you put it there, which, as I say, is very much the way the public health people put it, is kind of like a the view of the philosopher king. It's like we have to bring down smoking and therefore we need to do X, Y, and Z. Well, why do we need to bring down smoking? Why do we need to bring down obesity? Why do we need to decide how much salt people consume, how much sugar people consume? We we don't need to, we being the government. It's down to the individual. And the individual is quite capable of making these decisions um, for themselves. And there are a lot of people who actually do not want to stop smoking or don't mind being fat, or if they do mind being fat, they consider it a worthwhile um, consequence of leading a life of kind of gluttonous levity. And so what happens when the government tries to design a one-size-fits-all policy and decides that they're going to create a tobacco-free world, uh, or they're going to stamp out drunkenness, or whatever it may be, is they put they, they directly harm and, and damage uh, millions of people who don't share those preferences. And that's really the issue, is that the individual can abstain from any of these things, can avoid any of these things perfectly easily of their own volition without causing everybody else to kind of have to follow suit. And if they don't want to follow suit, they just have to pay a lot more for it or turn to the black market or whatever may be required. But leaving it to the individuals doesn't cause any harm to other people. Leaving it to the government does. I also think with uh, Aaron's question, you cite in your book a guy named Larry Gostin, uh, Lawrence Gostin, a few times. He's a public health who I've I've been invited to his class at Georgetown to speak a oh, few, well. few times on guns, which he views as a public health issue. And uh -huh. I've and I've I've been I've said the the problem with this is that unlike cholera or Ebola, there's no, nobody wants cholera. There's no positive, like I, a pro cholera yeah. side. There's nobody who thinks that I would love to get Ebola or they don't collect Ebola. They don't collect cholera. They don't have cholera racks in their car, but people like guns. And so when you, you, then you have to weigh preferences against each other, but there's no positive side to disease. But of course, how would the public health people feel like? What do public health people, the kind we're talking about, think is the optimal rate of smoking? Zero. I mean, that that would be true uh, also of alcohol consumption uh, and obesity, probably sugar consumption too these days. Uh, it's always zero in principle if you're going to look at these um, these lifestyle choices and products and activities purely through the lens of health. But one of the things I say in the book is that nobody actually looks at everything purely through the lens of health in their own eyes, including sorry, in their own lives, including the public health people, presumably. So why would you have any kind of political movement like public health making assumptions uh, that no individual actually holds? In the uh, smoking context, too, and also with the things that, that are often paternalism is brought to bear on fatty food, fast food, sugary soda smoking it also seems like there's a little bit of a, a class element to this 
that, that maybe is even more pronounced in the UK due to the, the larger presence of a class system. But there's something in, in common with all those three things I, I listed, which it, it doesn't really align with the preferences of upper middle class people who prefer uh, the nice bistro over the fast food joint and they don't like to smoke and, and they, they may prefer LaCroix to sugary soda. Yeah, it's it's riddled with uh, class bias and prejudice, I think. It's very noticeable that although smoking rates used to be pretty evenly distributed through the classes, over the years we've got to a point where smoking is overwhelmingly a blue-collar activity. And as a result of that, governments feel much more willing uh, to be explicitly paternalistic and bring in much more draconian measures than they used to. In the case of alcohol in Scotland, there's a policy recently come in, uh, more or less a world first, really, whereby a unit of alcohol cannot be sold below a certain price. Um, this acts sort of like alcohol taxation insofar as it makes alcohol less affordable, except it's absolutely tailor-made to affect poor people overwhelmingly because it puts up the price of cheap alcohol. It doesn't put up the price of champagne or fine wine at all. And with food, um, it's been quite interesting in the UK because in the last year or so, the the government here has gone completely gung-ho on um, so-called anti-obesity policies. And so they're all targeting junk food, but there is there is no legal definition of junk food. Never has been. What we have instead is something called HFSS, which is food high in fat, salt, and sugar. And that term is hardly ever used. People just talk about junk food, and everybody knows what we're talking about when we talk about junk food, right? We're talking about fast food. We're talking about McDonald's, burgers, sodas, and so on. But the actual definition hfss encompasses all sorts of other things you know hummus and olive oil and all the uh, you know cheese and uh, you know fine sausages and stuff like that and so it's been interesting to see the kind of middle brow press when they complain about this they always put it in terms of those kind of foods well, isn't it ridiculous that the government's going to ban advertising for olive oil well it kind of is yeah but it's high in saturated fat and therefore it, it falls under the radar um it's the same with alcohol you know if anybody's taking a sort of a pro alcohol position or an anti-temperance position in the middle of highbrow press they only ever talk about wine you know because that's what uh, appeals to people so there's sort of a cognitive distance almost in that you know everybody wants the government to clamp down on everybody else and it's only when they realize that actually for example people on high incomes are much heavier drinkers than people on low incomes you know if we're going after binge drinking we should be going after people on high incomes really uh, but we don't we go after very cheap cider with policies like minimum pricing so yeah it's absolutely um full of, of class prejudice and snobbery. This class prejudice and snobbery though, or the, at least the way that the, the policies and the way they're talked about end up looking like that, um, I, can, I can imagine kind of two causes for that. And the, so the one that seems to have come out when you've been talking just now is, is call it like genuine snobbery or um, like noblesse oblige that we, you know, we the upper crust have to take care of the poor because they don't they don't know how to take care of themselves. So therefore, we're going to 
ban or limit the kinds of bad behaviors, the kinds of bad products that poor people engage in or consume, but because we, the upper crust, you know, know better and are able to manage ourselves, we don't need to bother with the fatty foods that we like. So it's kind of it's like a conscious thing. But on the other hand, I can I can imagine simply that the kinds of people who end up being regulators, the kinds of people who end up being decision makers in government come from certain strata of society, that the very poor don't end up there. And and most people tend to, you know, you don't tend to think of your own preferences as bad. Um, right. you, you know, it's always something someone else, like other people are doing it because you know, like if if it were bad, I would stop doing it because I'm a rational, well-informed person. And so it's more just that the the only stuff that they're like they're kind of just regulating along the lines of what they're familiar with, and so, so less malign. You mean so less malign, and so then I wonder, like, so with the first one, if it's if there's this malignity there, that's that's harder to fix while maintaining kind of the overall goal of helping people out. Whereas if it's more of the latter, it would just be well, we just need to get kind of more poor people or more people from these other social groups involved in the decision making. Well, yeah, I. <sighs> Yeah, I kind of see the modern public health movement very much in terms of the Victorian, you know, moral crusades that went on. You know, I first came to this issue by um, looking at the history, history of anti-smoking, the history of alcohol prohibition, history of the war on drugs, um, and it was always very much the upper middle classes, you know, worrying uh, about the poor and trying to bring them into line. Not always worrying, actually, often just hating them, to be quite frank. Um, and so, yeah, that's going on. That requires a certain degree of hypocrisy because, as you say, these people are, in fact, eating lots of fatty foods and sugary drinks. They're just more expensive forms of those products. Um, they certainly are by no means all teetotalers. They'll be drinking fine wine, often you know, comes free at whichever conference they're, they're at. Um, so, yeah, it requires a, almost a, a lack of self-awareness to some extent and also uh, a, a good deal of hypocrisy. But I do think, as you say, it's uh, it, it comes down to this idea that, you know, I can handle it. I, I, I can, you know, look after myself, but these other people can't. And I've never really accepted that. Um, I, I think it's a very bad way to to govern at, at, at the very least um maybe i'm wrong to some extent in that maybe you know there are people who who need uh, more paternalism but i don't really think so i think as a general rule uh, a lot of the time the people the people that uh, you know the public health lobby is trying to regulate are actually a lot smarter than they are i uh one of the, one of the we discussed earlier this choice architecture question in Sunstein and Thaler that that if you do that, then it, it doesn't seem that objectionable in, in many instances. But one of the things that you see in poorer neighborhoods, I've been to neighborhoods in London where all you see are fast food joints, all you see are takeaway chicken places and, and places that were just serving very unhealthy food and you don't see a nice place with salads and vegetables. They call them food deserts. Whether or not that's an apt term or not, it's definitely true that you do see this. So is it the case that maybe one thing we could do is change the choice architecture of their neighborhoods uh, and someone who wanted to go get a salad who lives in those neighborhoods wouldn't have to go across to Westminster or something to get a, to get a salad and they can get one on a local level? Is that a valid form of paternalism perhaps? Well, I'm very cynical about the idea that food deserts really exist in Britain at all. I, I, I dare say they do in America where people 
um, tend to drive much longer distances to do everything. Um, but not in this country. I think the definition in Britain of a food desert is if you're more than 400 meters away <laughs> from uh, somewhere that sells fresh food. I mean, that's a tiny distance. I, I technically live in a food desert on that basis, but I still walk to the shop in like 10 minutes. I mean, it's just, it's, it's no, it's no distance at all. Um, so you have to use a pretty crazy definition of food desert to find many of them in Britain. And actually even in uh, central London. I mean, you're quite right. There's lots of chicken shops and fast food shops, but there's also a hell of a lot of fresh um, food shops and and mini marts and indeed supermarkets as well. Um, the vast majority of people in Britain do their shopping at supermarkets. Uh, a lot of people actually complain there's too many supermarkets are popping up everywhere. Uh, there really isn't a problem for the vast majority of people, over 80 of whom, uh, over 80 percent of whom have a car anyway. There isn't a, a, an issue for getting hold of uh, fresh, good food, not not in Britain at least. One of the interesting points you make in the book is is the use of statistical, uh, sort of big statistical uh, numbers uh, saying how many people we could reduce breast cancer or if we could change the rate of smoking or change the rate of fast food or, or name it, we would save 3,000 lives a year or 5,000 lives a year. What's wrong with the way that they, that they discuss those numbers? Well, because it has no it has no meaning to the individual, and the only reason you would uh, try and make an estimate of how many people are supposedly dying of a certain thing as a result of a certain activity, uh, and take that number from across the entire globe, and often take it over ten or twenty years, is because you want to inflate it, right? Um, and the reason you want to inflate it is because the actual risk to the individual is so tiny that if you explained it accurately, it would be of no concern whatsoever to them. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head what that breast cancer statistic was, but I think it was something like uh, if you're a, a woman and you're a light or moderate drinker, your risk of breast cancer is 6% greater than it would otherwise be. So, something like that. You know, All these figures are based on ultra low epidemiology. Um, but if you explain to a woman what her absolute risk of developing breast cancer uh, in her life was and what an extra 6% means, it would essentially be a rounding error. There wouldn't be any meaningful difference between the two figures. And that would be true of, of uh, most um, kind of scares related to, uh, related to cancer or anything else where you've got one particular cause supposedly increases the risk by 15 or 20 or 30 percent or something you know, generally speaking unless the risk is at least doubling it's not going to be enough to concern a normal person who knows that they have to die of something anyway who knows that most people who um develop cancer certainly not not quite so much breast cancer unfortunately but generally speaking cancer is, is a disease of old age they know they're going to die of something probably if they do get a disease it's going to be late in life um and if they avoid one disease it's only going to open the door to another one so yeah the only reason that you get these very large numbers is because you have to multiply them by the population of the world, or at least the population of a large country, in order to get a figure that's halfway scary. Does it sometimes seem like these paternalists, especially of the public health ilk, are obsessed with death? It strikes me sometimes that they have two metrics of, of, 
success in life. Basically, old, old age is, is the biggest one and just some sort of general healthiness. But it's always lifespans and they're obsessed with, with delaying death. And I think most people are not as obsessed with delaying death as your average public health person. Absolutely right. I'm, I'm pretty sure that most people are more interested in the quality of their life than the quantity of their life within reason, right? I mean, obviously, there are some significant risks that people really do want to avoid because it could strike them down uh, at a young age, but not many of them these days, you know, and it's an irony and a paradox that uh, as we've avoided so many of the, the traditional causes of death since we've more or less wiped out contagious diseases in wealthy countries and since people are living longer than ever the people are more terrified or at least that's the impression you get through the media and the public health lobby more terrified of death than ever before and the the brutal truth of the matter is that you know the the real problem um from a economic and financial point of view is the aging population you know it's you know, how much longer can we keep increasing life expectancy how full can these nursing homes be um while being financially viable um you know we could easily get to the point in the next 20 years where people are spending more time out of the workforce than in it when you add up all the time they spend in you know education higher education you know going traveling and then retiring early you know people are looking at decades of um of either retirement or being otherwise economically inactive. And it's not obvious that the working population is going to be able to support them. So these are the real time bombs. You know, the obesity time bomb is nothing of the sort. The smoking time bomb never was. Um, and all these other scares that come along, you know, they're, they're, they're so trivial in the context of, of what's really going on. Um, but you're right, they, they are very morbid. And one of my objections to them is that um, they're constantly trying to get people to dwell on death. Um, and, you know, we're not really, even with the increase in life expectancy, we're not on this planet for that long. I don't think we should be confronted with thoughts of death um, from dawn to dusk. It's one reason I don't like the, the graphic warnings that they have on uh, cigarette packs in, in many countries now. You know, the, the, these aren't warnings in any real sense of the word. They're not trying to impart any information. And insofar as they do try to impart information, the the consumer reacts against it by just not looking at it. Um, they're there to repel. They're there to stigmatize and make people um, feel kind of disgusted. They would have the same effect if they just put a picture of some roadkill on there or something like that you know they're, they're not in any way educational they're just there to make people think about death and i don't think that is actually a you know psychologically healthy way to spend your life does this mean then if if we shouldn't be thinking about this um and and if there's this aging time bomb as you called it that we should be employing paternalism, let's stipulate, of a, of a soft variety to be encouraging people instead to be eating more yummy, fattening foods and <laughs> smoking more tasty cigars that you know will improve their happiness now potentially and also stave off this aging ticking time bomb some? <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd go that far. Um, and I don't know how encouragement people really need to be eating fatty foods and drinking sugary drinks. They seem to do pretty well on it of their own volition. But I certainly don't think we should be making it unnecessarily difficult, unnecessarily unattractive um, to do so. 
you know, I, I just think we should be giving people the facts and then leaving them alone. And that shouldn't really be a radical idea. I mean, maybe I've got rose tinted spectacles on, but that seems to me a fairly traditional view in liberal democracies. And one of the things you've probably noticed in Killjoys is that I don't really go very far from John Stuart Mill's view of liberty that he outlined in 1859 or whenever it was. Uh, I think that view which is the foundation of liberalism absolutely stands up today and uh is threatened by the whole public movement as much as it is by anything in the modern world because actually a lot of the old forms of paternalism have withered away um there isn't very much of it uh from a religious point of view, at least in, in Britain, you know, there's nobody who's trying to build a theocracy uh, in Britain. Nobody's, you know, trying to bring back blasphemy laws or anything like that. There is very little paternalism when it comes to sexuality. Uh, and the one thing that has continued and got stronger is this health stuff. And I basically don't think it is about health. I certainly, as I've said before, don't think it's about public health. I don't think it's really about health at all a lot of the time. I think it's about a, a whole web of other obsessions from various single-issue groups. Uh, a lot of it's down to snobbery, as we were saying before. There's a strong element of anti-capitalism involved. These guys just want to stop these nasty businesses from selling things to people. Um, and there's a good old you know, um, uh, there's a strong line in good old fashioned Puritanism, you know, the, the fear that somebody somewhere may be enjoying themselves. And I think that makes it a pretty powerful coalition of interests who are up against consumers who are often made to feel guilty about what they're doing anyway, some of whom might be uh, somewhat hyper, you know, might be hypochondriacs about their health due to the endless headlines about how everything's killing you. Um, and the the general public, your, your millions of smokers and drinkers and food consumers, uh, they're a, a disparate uh, you know, mass of people who, as we, you know, I don't know if you read the, the logic of collective action, but Olson in that book explains why minorities so often prevail over majorities. It's because the minorities uh, have a huge incentive to succeed and uh, very highly focused and in the modern era uh, tend to be funded by the government so they've got no worries about having adequate resources whereas the majority of people um, are affected each individually in quite a small way over a long period of time don't have the time and resources to get together and, and fight back even though there's so many more of them and um, and so that's that's a a big problem. It's a, it's a surprisingly big threat when you consider how few of these kind of zealots there actually are. Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.